Hi, can he do that, listeners? Late Thursday night after we'd finished this episode, some news broke. The Trump administration is now considering an executive order that would deny Central Americans the opportunity to seek asylum once they reach the United States. The proposed executive order would rely on the same legal authority that Trump used during the travel ban early in his presidency. At this point, it's not known whether Trump will actually proceed with the order. But if he were to issue the order, it would likely immediately trigger challenges in U.S. courts. As far as what we do know at this point about Trump's response to the caravan, here's a full episode. Some of the threats you face are just what is it like to walk 20 miles a day for 40 days with a two-month-old? Um, you know, that that's like an excruciating, I can't even imagine what that's like for the for the baby or the parents. Um, and I did, on like day two or day three, started seeing children who were, who were already getting sick. Thousands of migrants, largely from Central America, are trekking through Mexico in hopes of reaching the United States border. Estimated by the United Nations as more than 7,000 people, this migrant group has caught the attention of the president of the United States. In response, Trump has invigorated his base with claims that he will stop these migrants from entering the U.S. So can Trump come through on those claims? What can his administration actually do? And how much support is there for taking these actions? As this group of migrants approaches our border, which pieces of border operations and immigration law can Trump change or influence? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Now, those who will be most significantly affected by any actions that the president takes are the men, women, and children traveling in this caravan en route to our southern border. To hear from those people, Washington Post Latin American correspondent Kevin Seif spent time traveling with the caravan. He spoke to me from Mexico City. I met up with the caravan at the the Guatemala-Mexico border in a city on the Mexican side called Ciudad Hidalgo, which is where, you know, at at that point, I think there were roughly 3,000 people who crossed the border. This migrant caravan originated in Honduras. We don't yet know the exact moment the idea for the caravan was formed, but many migrants told Kevin that they found out about it through posts on Facebook and WhatsApp. The same way that things go viral in the U.S., that's the way things go viral in Central America. I mean, the the caravan went viral. It went viral really quickly. And there were a lot of people who maybe, you know, We're thinking about leaving soon or maybe not even thinking about leaving so soon who just saw this as an opportunity. Yet despite the virality of the caravan news, many people had little notice before they made the decision to join and head north. I mean, there was like the sense of urgency. I think people caught wind of the caravan quite late in some cases. And so, you know, I talked to to a guy yesterday, young, a young boy, 16 years old, who told me at four o'clock in the morning, his friend knocked on his door and said, you know, we're going to the U.S., you know, the caravan, the caravan's leaving, the, the caravan has left. And, you know, he packed his, his little backpack in like 10 minutes or something and was off on this journey that will probably take, you know, 50 days or something. So why then, with little time to make this life-altering decision, would people choose to go on a difficult journey like this one and for an outcome that's uncertain? The one danger, I think, when describing why people are fleeing their homes is sort of describing this massive group as being 
somehow uniform, you know, that, that everyone's fleeing for the same or for very similar reasons. I mean, the reality is that with a group this big, there's a huge, people are leaving home for a huge range of reasons. There are a lot of people who have very, very specific threats that they can describe that they faced. This is a a story I heard yesterday, for example, a a woman whose husband was killed six months ago in El Salvador by by a gang. She reported the murder to the police the gang heard that she had reported the murder to the police and then she started getting threats targeting her. And then you hear much vaguer stories of people who say, well, you know, in my community, the, the gangs are very powerful. And if you want to open up a business, you've got to pay a certain fraction of your profits to the gang. And, and I'm, I'm unwilling to accept that. And so there, like, there's just this whole range of stories you hear when you ask people why they're leaving. I definitely think it's important for people who are like looking at this massive group of people and see them just as sort of like, a group of people who all seem like they're the same in some way to know that like they are not. What does that journey normally look like for a Central American to try to make it to the United States in the absence of a caravan? The range of threats that they would face if they weren't, if they were trying to travel north without a caravan, I mean, it's a very, very long list. One is that it's incredibly expensive, right? So basically the alternative is paying a, a smuggler, which are sort of known locally as, as coyotes, and that for someone in, in Honduras or someone in Guatemala can cost, you know, over $10,000. It can cost a huge amount of money. Another is people, especially young men, will take the, the train, will sort of ride the, and this is something that's been happening for basically decades now. They'll ride the, the, the sort of roof of the train um, through southern Mexico and central Mexico, incredibly dangerous. There are lots of gangs and cartels that, that operate in that region. So there are huge risks there as well. Um, and the caravan, you know, does not come without threats itself. But because there are so many people, because there's such sort of public attention on, on the group, and because, I mean, at this point, the sort of local police have more or less been sort of escorting them in a way, there's more security. And so, so not only do you save the money, but you also, you know, especially if you're traveling with a family, uh, you're, you're traveling in a much safer way. Can you elaborate on some of the threats that these people in the caravan are facing? Yeah, I mean, I think some of them are just simply, I really can't overstate the, the number of families with small children that I've seen. And so, I mean, if you've got two young kids and some of them, I mean, they're, the youngest child I met is two months old. So, I mean, that's, that's one threat. And then another is, you know, they're sleeping. Most, most people are sleeping outside every night um, in, in sort of main plazas in various towns. And I, don't, I certainly don't think that the average member of the caravan is, poses a threat to, to, to anyone, including other members of the caravan. But like, you know, sleeping outside in any city in the world comes with the risks. And so it's, it's by no means safe. And what is likely to actually happen at the border? What are the options for these people and what sort of paths are, are likely? So, I mean, I think that's where we're going to see a sort of repeat of, of what we saw earlier this year with the first caravan, where a certain number of people will get in line at a port of entry and apply for asylum or try to apply for asylum. The, this administration has made it very difficult to do that. And then a number of other people will try to cross the border illegally. We'll try to walk through the desert. We'll try to cross the Rio Grande. I mean, they don't know how they're going to do it yet. And so it's very hard to, to know how many people will take each approach, but there will be a sort of mix of people who sort of do this legally by getting asylum and, and people who try to just just cross the border however they can. 
So this isn't the first time that we've seen a group of migrants from Central America gather like this and approach the U.S. southern border en masse. What, though, makes this caravan different? These caravans have, have been occurring for several years. I mean, prior to Trump, they did not receive a huge amount of attention. Um, they received very, very little attention. And they were, you know, they were and continue to be sort of half protests, you know, trying to bring attention to the plight of migrants, to the plight of people in Central America, and then half a very sort of effective way of reaching the U.S. border. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it serves both purposes. It continues to serve both purposes. There was a caravan earlier this year, and what changed then is that it captured the attention of the American president. He started tweeting about it. He made it into sort of a symbol of what this administration calls a sort of immigration crisis or a migration crisis at, at America's border. But it was much smaller than the caravan that we're seeing now. I mean, I think there were roughly 1,500 people f for, most of the, for most of that trip, or at least maybe at its height. And now we're talking about maybe 7,000 people. President Trump has been speaking publicly about immigrants as a threat to our southern border since literally the day he announced that he was running for president. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some... I assume are good people. The emergence of this caravan caught his attention as part of an immigration crisis narrative that he often speaks about at his rallies and on Twitter. So it was a couple weeks ago because the caravan started uh, at a fairly small numbers, but grew very quickly into a much larger size. And so uh, that drew media attention. Uh, and of course, that got the attention of the president. That's David Nakamura. He's a White House reporter here at The Washington Post who's covered Obama's and now Trump's approaches to immigration. It's been a top issue for this president, and he seems to be uh, interested in trying to draw attention to it for a couple of reasons, maybe to deflect blame of his own immigration policies because he promised to crack down on un unauthorized immigration uh, and also then maybe to transfer some of the blame to Democrats. Yeah, so this is a good point. A, a recent Pew Research Center poll found that 75 percent of Republican voters considered illegal immigration a very big problem. And that number for Democrats was much lower, something like 19 percent. So how does that kind of data contribute to Trump's calculus in repeatedly bringing up the caravan at rallies and on Twitter? You know, a while back, it sounded like some Republican leaders may, may have wanted to focus on the tax cuts or the economy. Trump has made clear since the summer that he, he thinks the immigration remains a, a potent message for the midterms and for his base and for his conservative base. And so he felt good about having run on that in 2016 and saw how that helped him. And I think he feels the same way. I think there are, polls have shown different things about that, but it, some polls show that both parties, voters, see immigration as a, an important issue. But uh, some other polls have shown that actually Republicans appear to be more motivated by this and that even in the midterms, they are saying that will affect their selection of a candidate. And so I think the president has made clear in his rallies and now his Twitter account and his other public statements that this is the number one priority for him going into this election. And does part of that strategy include stoking fear among his base? Yes, uh, very much so. He's been doing that from the start, from his first campaign, throughout his presidency. 
And it's interesting because he, I think, if you look at the border numbers, uh, they dropped significantly in his first few months in office. And experts say they, they don't know for sure why, but they think maybe that uh, human smugglers and others who helped uh, migrants come north heard the president's rhetoric and sort of maybe put a pause on some of the immigration or illegal immigration channels because they, you know, wondered, they wanted sort of a wait and see approach to see if the president would make good on his threats to get tougher on the border. Over time, the president's had trouble implementing all the policies that he's wanted to. So I think you've seen the numbers then at the end of 2017 and certainly through this year have, have continued to grow. Uh, now, actually, the number of families and children coming from Central America for 2018 fiscal 2018 was actually a record numbers, uh, higher than in uh, 2014, when you remember there was an unaccompanied minor crisis under President Obama at the border, uh, and even 2016, where the numbers had been the previous high. So Trump's now responding to that. I think he you know, feels some vulnerability because he hoped to maybe run on progress. He hasn't gotten his border wall. Uh, the numbers are up. Uh, they're even uh, under the peak rates of deportations under Obama. So the president's uh, struggling to sort of make good on his promise. And is he blaming Democrats for that struggle? He's Yes, he's certainly trying to blame Democrats. Their argument is, look, we're trying to move as quickly as possible. Democrats are resistant to the wall funding because that's something Congress has to approve and to other measures that would overturn some legal safeguards for migrants who show up at the border and sort of prevent the government from quickly trying to deport them. In some cases, for example, Central American immigrants have even greater protections than those from Mexico for various reasons. And that's where you're seeing most of the immigrants in this sort of a spike and in this caravan coming from uh, Central American countries. President Trump is saying, look, Democrats won't support my efforts to overturn some of these laws and speed up deportations. Uh, the White House believes that would be an effective method, method of uh, deterrence. But certainly Democrats are saying, wait, hold on a second. You're the president. You have to take ownership of this. You can't blame Obama anymore. It's been two years under your leadership, under your tactics. Uh, things like the family separation policy in the summer where they separated children from the parents drew huge international uh, blowback. And the president himself recognized it and actually overturned what he his administration had done. So, you know, we're left with a point where who knows what's going to happen right now? We don't know if this, these migrants uh, and this current caravan will reach the border, how many would, and what will happen if they do. Trump has actually taken this opportunity to directly blame Democrats for organizing and funding this migrant caravan. Do we have any evidence? Have we seen evidence to support that claim? No, he's done a couple of things. He's piled on to suggestions from other Republicans that Democratic donors have sort of funded this, as you said, to try to make it an issue in the campaign and make him look bad sort of because he's not been able to control uh, immigration and, you know, in the southern border. But there is no evidence of that. He's also trying to make the claim that, you know, maybe this was uh, folks who are sympathetic to um, socialist governments in Venezuela and other places that he's been very critical of. And, and and they're trying to embarrass him. Right. And Trump's also suggested that there might be unknown Middle Easterners on this particular caravan. And when pressed on that, he said it could very well be. I have very good information. Do we know if this is likely to be true or to what information he might be referring? After making that claim and after his aides rushed to sort of say this is true, there has been no evidence that they put forward to sort of back up that claim. First of all, we don't even if there were Middle Easterners, we don't know what that's supposed to imply. I think he's he's suggesting that means there's ties to terrorism. So that's a big leap there. The government has said, look, you know, when we've, if you look at the border numbers and the arrests we make, we do find folks from other countries, including the Middle East over time, but that's not directly about this caravan. The government's also suggested that Mexico has some data, although they've not made it public, that shows there's folks from other countries. We don't, we have not seen that. And the president himself, as you said, then sort of backtracked and suggested it could possibly be true, but we don't know. So Trump has suggested several responses to this caravan. This is sort of where we get into the meat and potatoes of the can he do that 
question. He's called this a national emergency. Does he have the power to call this a national emergency and to send people down to the border? Yeah, it's not clear what he means by national emergency. What we do know is that uh, there was a, a spike in the in the numbers at the border in the spring, and the president was very angry and sort of pressing his aides, including uh, Kristen Nielsen, the Homeland Security Secretary, to get tougher. And w- one of the things he did then was to authorize uh, the deployment of up to 4,000 National Guard troops. What we found, though, is that the National Guard has a pretty limited role at the border uh, because there's some jurisdictional issues about whether Border Patrol, which has the jurisdiction, believes that they, you know, that they don't want to have um, some interference by other, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies. The National Guard troops have been used before under both President Bush and under President Obama to support some of the efforts at the border. But um, but the Guard troops are then um, dispatched in the states and uh, the governors oversee some of their role and set some limits as well. And of course, it was reported on Thursday that the Trump administration would deploy at least 800 more troops to the border. Those troops would be mostly from the army, so they'd act in more of a humanitarian relief capacity than in an enforcement capacity. Now, Trump's also suggested that he would cut off aid funding to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Is that something that he can do? Can he do that? He does have the power to do so. You know, what it was interesting is we've already seen some decrease in aid to the so-called Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras uh, since the Obama administration. In 2014, there was a big public humanitarian crisis at the border when a bunch of unaccompanied children uh, began to cross. And the government, they sort of overwhelmed the border patrol stations. They were sleeping on the floor and the government had to respond. And in in doing so, uh, the President Obama and his administration, along with Congress, authorized uh, a $750 million annual package of aid to those three countries and the broader region um, to sort of deal with uh, economic development, public safety, ways to sort of make sure migrants felt they, they could stay in their own countries. And so far, we've seen under the last couple of years that that funding has dropped. The question is, could Trump cut it even more drastically? And because Congress helps set the budget levels. And what we what we discovered is that there is some provisions in, in the in the authorization from 2014 that requires these countries to take certain steps. And if they're not met and the State Department decertifies them and says you haven't met these steps, uh, they could cut more of the funding. So it's possible. A lot of experts tell me, though, that Doing that would be the exact opposite of what you want to do because trying to keep the immigrants from leaving their country is the goal here. Um, developing these countries, making them feel safe in their own countries, uh, you know, having a path to success, that requires you know, uh, investment, public and private. Of course, you want to have you know, safeguards that your money is well spent and make sure these governments that are, are struggling are, are able to use the money wisely, and that's important but for the U.S. government to do. But experts say if you cut that funding, it's going to make the problem worse. Is there evidence that Trump's hardline positions on immigration have actually affected uh, people's approach to the border? How many people have crossed into America? No, actually, the opposite. As I mentioned, you know, the numbers uh, fell early in Trump's tenure, but then have picked up again. And this particular issue of Central American families coming has been something we've seen over the past five years or so is a new phenomenon. And it's really bedeviling Trump now in the same way that it kind of did with Obama. No one's really sure how to deal with it. It's a new kind of immigrant. It used to be in the 90s and, and in the 2000s. Much of the immigration, illegal immigration at the border was, you know, folks from Mexico looking for work. Now you have families, you know, fleeing poverty, violence, even domestic abuse and other factors. Um, And so it's a different issue. And so Trump has tried to get tougher. He's made rules on asylum more difficult. 
They've sent more judges, immigration judges, to the border to try to speed up hearings, to speed up deportations. But uh, as we're seeing this year, the numbers have set new records, especially from Central America. And so they haven't really made a big dent there. There's the other question of uh, sort of interior enforcement, trying to deport folks who've been here a long time. Uh, This government has gotten tougher on that as well. But there's also legal safeguards in cities uh, around the country don't necessarily cooperate with some of these and try to protect immigrants more. Uh, And so they really struggle to sort of implement all the things the president promised. So now we may see as many as 7,000 people make it as far as the border. And I imagine that Republicans don't want to see harsh treatment of these people turned away in masses to suffer or sent back to countries where they're persecuted. At the same time, I imagine that Democrats don't want a flood of immigrants or illegal immigrants to enter the country without proper vetting and without due process. So is there a better solution than either of these? Is there a bipartisan solution here? So this immediate issue, you know, it's really complicated. If immigrants come to a legal port of entry and declare for asylum, they have certain protections. And so if they go through legal ports, it's hard to turn them away. If they're, if they're wading through the Rio Grande River and other factors, the, the government may have more options to try to prevent them from entering. But because especially their families and children, they do have greater legal safeguards. And so it's not clear that the president would have the power or even want to because of the political uh, optics uh, of trying to sort of have a military or law enforcement to prevent them from even entering. On the broader question of how you have a bipartisan solution, both sides do say they would like this to be different. Um, And we've seen the problem is that Congress can't agree on a solution. I think the biggest issues that Congress could weigh in on here is to provide more money, to house these families and provide facilities and to speed up uh, some of the processing of their claims for asylum and the, and the hearings before immigration judges. That's very costly. The other is, of course, uh, some sort of big comprehensive reform bill, which you know would sort of revamp the whole system, but we just have not seen that in, in several decades. While a complete overhaul to our immigration system may not be imminent, the possibility of more than 7,000 people reaching our southern border seeking entry into the United States is imminent. Traveling on foot, this migrant caravan is likely to reach the border in a matter of weeks. And while the Trump administration offers strong rhetoric about preventing these individuals from crossing the border, exactly what will happen when they reach the U.S. remains unclear. For many of the people that Kevin Seif spoke with, that uncertainty is not a deterrent. There are a few people who have a, of a sort, of, sort of strong sense of what asylum is and how they'll get it. But the vast majority of the people that I've talked to sort of say, we'll figure it out when we get to the border. I'm not sure if I'm going to apply for asylum or if I'm going to just try to cross the border illegally. I'll figure it out when I get there. I mean, there's really not, people are not very certain about what they're going to do when they get there, which, I mean, there's just a sort of faith that this is going to somehow work out and, and that even if it doesn't, you know, it was it's worth a try. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? You can find Can He Do That on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please tell a friend, write a friend, email a friend, tweet at a friend, Facebook post on a friend's page. Just share it. Thanks so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the infallible Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 